I want you to imagine with me a part of the world where Christians are struggling and suffering. Not just in one church, but in a series of churches that are going through some hard times. Imagine a place where people are tempted to give up on church altogether. In part because Christian leaders show that by their actions they care more about making money and keeping power than they do care about God's people and serving them selflessly. Can you imagine a time and place like that? If some of you are thinking about the community that we live in, I'm not necessarily thinking about them. If you're thinking about the people that are living in the U.S., I'm not even thinking about them. Although any of these descriptions could fit the current community we live in, the state of the United States of America and the church there. I'm not even thinking of a modern church. The situation for which I just described to you is a group of churches that received a letter from one of Jesus' closest companions. This letter was written by a man named Peter. Peter writes, to a situation where there's a group of churches that are going through some hard times where leaders are tempted to sell out for money, where they're tempted to give up on church altogether and deny Jesus and their faith in him. So I want to read from this letter. It's a few verses in the latter half of it, but before we do so, I want to share a picture with you that I think will help illustrate really the main point of today's message and the next two weeks after this week. This picture is of the Hope Diamond. It is one of the most well-known jewels in all the world and one of the most valuable diamonds in the world. Its estimate value of worth is over $350 million. It has 52 carats. To the naked eye, it shines, as you can see now, with a nice bright blue color. But when it is under some certain light, it actually shines red, and it's part of what makes it so unique and special. I want this picture of the Hope Diamond to be in your head as we think about today's message and this series on the church. The church of Jesus Christ is not the diamond. Jesus Christ is the diamond. He is the jewel. He is worth more value than any Hope Diamond or any other jewel, infinitely of greater value. So the church is not the diamond. The church is the prongs that the diamond is being displayed upon for which you would not have the angle of the light at the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History in D.C. where I once lived. You wouldn't see it in its beauty reflecting that light if it wasn't set upon something like these prongs that it sits upon. The church is the prongs. The gospel is the diamond. The church is what makes the gospel of Jesus Christ visible and beautiful. The church has fallen on hard times here in the United States of America. The church has fallen on hard times right here in our neighborhood. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is of infinite value and worth. We should not give up on it. We should uphold and display as human beings gathering and collectively together. We are the prongs holding up the glorious gospel of Jesus. That is our job. That is our role. It is an extremely important role. Ladies, I want you to imagine if you've ever been proposed to that scene and scenario. Ladies, for those of you that are longing to be proposed for whatever fantasies or dreams, I want you to imagine that scene, but instead of bowing down on one knee and holding and handing out a ring, this gentleman just has a diamond in his hand. Just a diamond. Maybe even the hope diamond. No matter how glorious and beautiful it is, wouldn't there be a thought, what am I going to do with that? Thank you. Yes, hopefully they might say to you, I want to marry you, but what do I do with just the diamond in my hand? Do I put it in my purse or my pocket? Then no one can see it. I want people to know I'm taken. That's my man. And look at the diamond he got me. That's the point for why it's on a ring. That's why it's around a necklace. In fact, the Hope Diamond is often displayed in this beautiful necklace where it's got prongs and whatever else that's showing and displaying the radiant beauty of it. In the same way then, what would be the point of having something of infinite worth and value, of such extraordinary beauty, but it hide in a pocket? 
or back away tucked in a box. In this teaching series on the church, we want to encourage all of us to behold the diamond-like beauty of the gospel, but also consider how the church in general and church leaders in particular are to help display this diamond. That is our role and purpose, and it is an excellent role and purpose. And so with that, let's read 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-5. through 5. This is on page 1016 if you're using the Black Bibles around you. I'd encourage you that throughout this sermon and any other messages that you hear at Embassy, we want to be centered around God's Word. So see that the very points to which we're going to cover are going to come, in fact, from these words of Scripture. Starting in verse 1, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In order to help us understand this section of Scripture, I have three questions for us that I'd like you to think about. Who should be leading the church? What should these leaders be doing? And how should these leaders lead? And to let me just give you the answers with one word for each of these questions. Who should lead the church? What should leaders do? How should leaders lead? Here are the answers. Who? In a word, elders. What? In one word, shepherd. It's also the same word as pastor, which we'll cover in a second. And how? Overseeing. These are the three key words in our text. And in fact, these are the three key words that describe the leaders in the New Testament church. And they're all synonyms with one another. But it's like looking into a diamond where You can look at something from different angles and see a different side of its beauty. And so, with a church leader, you can see different angles by looking at which synonym word is being used. So, there's elder, there's shepherd or pastor, or there's overseer or bishop. And although I'm not going to suggest you take me literally, technically, biblically speaking, you could call myself or any of the elders a elder, presbyter, priest, shepherd, pastor, overseer, bishop. So if any of you want to say, hey, that was a great sermon, Bishop Phil, that's true. Biblically speaking, I'm an overseer, which is the word that we get for a bishop. And that's why if you've ever heard of bishops in church lingo or presbyter, where Presbyterians get their name from, or the way that priests in the Catholic church get their name from, it comes from these root words, elder. Typically in our church lingo, we use the word pastor, and I would be fine if you want to just call me Phil or Pastor Phil. Either one work well. Strangely enough, the word noun, pastor, is the least used word in the New Testament. But it's the most used word here at our church at Embassy and kind of in common lingo. So there you go. We're going to look at these three words and at the different angles of them. Let's start first with the word elder. Who should lead the church? And the answer here in verse 1 is elders. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. We'll just kind of camp out on this first verse here and think about this word elder. Now, the word elder, it literally means to be an older person. Maybe you've heard the word elderly before. That's the same word we're talking about, an older person. However, this word elder is used as a title for church leaders. So it's not just a noun describing an elderly person. It's also a title for people who have a specific role in the local church. And I'm going to save you the time and that it would take, but if you were to just read, you'd notice this word is used a lot, and it's used for people who are actually younger than an elderly person. Take, for example, Timothy is called an elder, but he would have probably been in his late 20s or early 30s, which even in that day, they don't have the same life expectancy that you and I do today. That still would have been a younger person because Paul tells Timothy, don't let them look down on you because you are young. 
So how does a young man also become an elder? Because it's not that he's an old man that makes him an elder. It's because he is a mature man that makes him an elder. In other words, elder as a noun, as a descriptor, is to tell you that there is an age of spiritual wisdom with the Word of God, with life experience, and practice of caring for a home, for example, as 1 Timothy 3 says. How can you care for God's church if you can't even care for your own home? There's tested and proved experience that a man who's going to serve the church should have. So the man could be young or he could be older. The point is, is that he should be spiritually mature and wise, like an old man typically would give you that picture of. Notice the humility exemplified by the language of Peter himself in our verse. So I exhort the elders, plural by the way, every church, every time in the New Testament is discussed as having elders, not one elder. Not one single leader, but a group of leaders, elders. This is a key little nugget for you to notice and see that this is how our church has set ourselves up as well as there are elders. But notice the way Peter says, I am a fellow elder. That's showing his solidarity, his we're on the same level. I don't have a superior authority when in fact he does. Turn back a couple pages to the very first verse of 1 Peter. The way the letter begins is Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is an apostle elder. This word apostle just literally means sent one, but again, it's another word that has a literal meaning, sent out, but then it has a meaning of a title. The title of somebody who was commissioned by Jesus himself which no elders today can say, yeah, I have had Jesus come and like lay hands and tell me you're going to be the pastor of this church or these group of people. Peter did though. Peter was commissioned and chosen by Jesus himself in human flesh and said, come, follow me. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. I'm going to make you a disciple and then commissioned him out. That's what an apostle is. Commissioned by Jesus in the flesh. Seeing him. And him talking to you. So therefore, I do not think it would be appropriate for you to call me Apostle Phil. Again, bishop, overseer, pastor, all within the realm. Apostle, no, no, not okay. But Peter could very easily, in 1 Peter chapter 5, say, I exhort you elders, and you better listen up, because I'm your apostle. That's not the way he talks. Because he's a mature, humble man. He says, I'm a fellow elder. Have you all ever heard of a person in church called a pope? Many people think that Peter was the first pope and that there was a succession of popes after Peter. What's interesting is that Peter sees himself as not some sort of special leader above everybody else, but as a fellow elder. He could very well exploit his title and his position and be like, oh, you know who I know? I know Jesus. Were you chosen by Jesus? I was. It's not the way this man talks. He talks as a fellow humble elder, not having some big head about his position or status. The spiritual maturity of a wise elder that should lead the church is not some big head celebrity pastor who goes around or some pope that says he has authority over everybody, but rather has a shared authority with other elders and humbly submits to the chief elder, Jesus. This is what an elder looks like in God's design for the church. Notice the way in verse 2, if you peek ahead, shepherd the flock of God. Whose flock is it? God's flock. Whose people are you to care for as an elder? God's people. We need to be careful in our lingo. This is part of the, the problem at times of the state of the church in America today, is that we too quickly say, oh, that's so-and-so's church. No, no, no. This is God's church. This is not Pastor Phil's church. This is not big name celebrity preacher. Oh, let's go to his church. No, no, that is God's church. And he is a under shepherd of King Shepherd Jesus. We need to make sure we get this clear that it is not Peter's church. It is not our church. It is the Lord's church. 
And therefore, I do not even prefer that you call me a senior pastor. I am just a pastor of the pastors and elders at embassy, and I'm one of them that does most of the teaching. So that's why my title is called pastor of preaching or teaching. For an elder to be an elder, there needs to be a spiritual, humble maturity that he knows it, he shows it, he lives it out. This is why later in our text you notice that he should be an example to those around him. If you have spiritual maturity, this is step one. In order to be an elder, qualification is character. Character that's worthy of people to follow your example. So if we look at our text one more time in verse one, what do you think made Peter humble like this? And I might suggest two things. First, the witness of the sufferings of Christ. If you're saying, I am commissioned by Jesus to do the work of Jesus, and you have a front row seat to the rejection of Jesus, you don't leave the same. In other words, if I were to put it this way, an elder that leads the church is a man who has been transformed and humbled by the sufferings of Christ. That his gaze is continually upon the cross of Christ. Now, some might debate whether or not Peter was actually there to see the final nail go into the hands of Jesus. I don't think that matters. He saw him for years be rejected, for men to plot his death, for his own family to say, this man's crazy. Peter was there, and he saw right to the very last day when he himself denied Jesus the way he was arrested, the way he suffered The way that his leader, his example that Peter is following is a man who gives his life, a man who dies for his people, a man who cares for the sheep more than he cares for himself. You, all of us in this room, if you look down at the bottom of our verse, verse 5, it tells us everyone should clothe themselves with humility. A lot of folks want to figure out, what should I wear to church? Here's what the Bible says, humility. That's what we should wear to church. How do we become humble? How do we wear the clothing garment of humility? It is by gazing upon the sufferings of Christ. As we see Christ dying for us, there should be at the same time a humbling feeling of, he had to do that for me? My sin is that bad that I I had to have all of that happen for me? It's a humbling feeling. At the very same time, there should be a lifting up out of the dirt and the ground and saying, no, no, you are not just a worthless worm in the dirt. You are valued and loved. Look what he did for you. Only the gospel can tell you to both be humble and affirmed all in the same moment and not be too crazy on one side or the other. This is what an elder looks like. A spiritually mature person is not so full of themselves that they got a big head, nor are they so wallowing and it's just all about being, I'm so bad, man. Today's sermon was just bad. Man, I just need some affirmation. Tell me it was good. There are these kind of pastors, and these kind of pastors should not be the ones feeding God's people, because then the pulpit becomes about their own egos, whether it is on one extreme or the other, whether constantly saying how bad things are and asking for the compliments, or just knowing quite well how good they are. Spiritually mature elder witnesses the sufferings of Christ and is humbled by them. The second thing you see in verse 1 about how does Peter get humbled? Because he knows that he is a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. This is future tense. I don't think this is talking about the transfiguration, about the revealing of Jesus in the past tense, nor the resurrection. I think he's talking about the return of Jesus Christ when he comes and makes all things new. And Peter knows that his reward is not here and now. His reward is in the future. Therefore, he can be humble now. He can give of himself now because he knows what was coming later on. We're going to hit this point again later, but I just think it's important for us to see in this first verse what makes a man like Peter humble, what makes him low and servant-like is that he knows Christ. He knows that he is not the diamond. Rather, he is just holding it up. That's my job. My job is to hold it up and people look at the beauty of the gospel of Christ. I want you to imagine for a moment what happens every time Throughout the Bible, somebody has a dream, a vision, or an actual physical experience of being in the presence of God. Think of Moses going up and down the mountain in the book of Exodus. 
and all the people at the bottom of the mountain. Think of Joshua when he sees the angel of the Lord. Think of Isaiah when he sees a vision and a dream almost, a vision of the Lord high and lifted up on his throne. Think of the apostles like Peter, who as soon as he understood who Jesus was, what was his response? Think of John, one of the other close friends and disciples of Jesus. On the island of Patmos, as he is suffering for Jesus and he is banished to an island, kind of a prison like Alcatraz, he's there suffering for Jesus and he sees a vision of the Lord. There's a common thread amongst all of them. Woe is me, fall to their faces. The blinding glory and majesty that is going to be revealed through the vision of Christ, it humbles somebody. It's not like every once in a while. It's like every time, 10 out of 10, every time someone comes into contact with the glory of God, it humbles them. When you gaze upon the beauty and you see both his lion and lamb-like glory, do you think, wow, look at all I did for Jesus. When you go to the edge of a mountain and you see the glory that's in front of you, do you start thinking about all of your accomplishments? When you stand at the edge of some big cavernous, taver- cavernous hole in the ground, like Grand Canyon, or just recently we went on a vacation in Hawaii, and we were in Kauai, there's this Grand Canyon-like moment where you stand at the tip and the edge, and it's like, whoa, and my wife's like, get away, you're too close, and you're freaking me out, and I don't want you to fall down. Do you think about yourself? Don't you see how selflessness is squashed by beholding something of infinite value and glory? No matter how much you like me, Phil Howell, this church is not about me. If I do anything good for Embassy Church, it is because I take you to the edge of the Grand Canyon. I help you behold and hold up. Just look at the diamond. And I'm not saying, hey, look at me. Please rebuke, reprove, and when necessary, remove any elder that seems out of line with this spirit. Embassy Church, I'm not saying that as some warning or threat. You have the authority. I do not. We have so structured this church that you are in fact the ones in charge of who is the one behind this teaching pulpit and who your elders are. Reprove, rebuke, and remove if necessary when elders are not acting in this manner. One of the great problems, I think, is when we think the church is about all the events and the programs and not the people that are upholding the glory of the gospel. When it's not about relationships and getting to know each other. When the church is more about an event to attend rather than a group of people and a family to do life with. You can't reprove, rebuke, and remove an elder if you don't know them. I've mentioned this before. It's appropriate to mention again. It has broken my heart the number of times in the last five years that somebody has come to our church and been in awe that a pastor invited them over to their house. That they've been at churches and they'd be like, this is the first time I've ever had a sit-down conversation over coffee with a pastor of a church. Friends, this is not right. This is not the vision of the church in the New Testament. Men will get big heads Men will have huge egos if they are not held accountable by the members of the church who can get to know them. If all you see is the top surface of the iceberg, you miss what's underneath of the surface, the heart of the man and the person. Therefore, we must do church in such a way where we can know one another and therefore know whether or not an elder is in fact mature. I believe by God's grace as I've gotten to know the other elders that they are not men who are living in such a way that they should be reproved and rebuked and removed for their big-headed, it's-all-about-me attitude. I would encourage you to do the same. Get to know them. Invite them over. Have them invite them over to your home. This is one of the core convictions at Embassy Church, is that you would know your leaders, your leaders would know you, and that you would hopefully see Jesus through them. Let's move on to point two. What should these leaders be doing Now that we've identified who they are, what should they be doing? We see in verse 2, the one key verb is shepherd. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. We've already mentioned that this is God's sheep, 
But what we see now is that there should be a shepherding, a pastoring. That's the same root word. So if you're saying pastoring, you mean shepherding. If you're saying shepherd, you mean pastoring. So this is why at the very beginning of the service I said, hey, if we've not met, my name is Phil. I serve as one of the pastor elders. Synonyms are the same thing. So whichever one you like. Here, shepherding should probably come to our mind in terms of what does shepherding entail? Well, simply it means to take care of. And more specifically, I would think we would want to think about feeding. Feeding the sheep. Taking care of the sheep in every which way imaginable. When we ask for prayer requests, it's not just spiritual matters. We care about all of you. Every part of your life. Financial issues, physical ailments. I don't think we need to divide physical and spiritual so much where it's like, well, the elders only care about spiritual matters. No, we care about you. But we especially want to care for your feeding spiritually of the truth of God's word. Imagine Peter denies Jesus three times right before Jesus dies on a cross. And when he is restored and commissioned by Jesus, maybe you remember in the end of John's gospel, Jesus says, as a reverse of all those three denials, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Can't help but have that picture in my mind when I read these words of First Peter chapter 5, that same guy who heard Jesus look at him in the face after what, doing what he did to him, forgiving and reconciling and restoring him and say, feed my sheep. This is what I want you to do. Shepherding includes feeding. It is the job of elders to feed you. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, it's not too far. If you want to turn a couple pages to your left in your Bibles, you'll see the book of Hebrews. In the Black Bibles, it's chapter 10, or one, uh, page 1009. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Here's a good example of what leaders look like in the Bible. There's many other places we could go, but this is one short little summary. What does an elder do? What does it look like to be an elder? Remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Do you see how our first two points are coming together in this one verse? An elder should have a, a way of life that the way he lives it is worthy of imitation and you look at his outcome of his life, the fruit of his life, and you say, that is a mature, godly person. Secondly, did you notice that what they're doing is speaking God's word to you? This, in a nutshell, is the summary of elders. Spiritually mature, speaking God's word. This is the task that they have been given. And throughout the Bible, you'll notice that the qualifications to be an elder is they need to be able to teach and they need to be able to refute false teachers. So, therefore, what should leaders do? They should preach, they should teach. They should prepare and feast on God's word. I remember one pastor friend of mine in Washington, D.C., he said, you know, when I think about feeding, a lot of times I just like quick fixes in the microwave. So, you know, like put a little hot pocket in there, a little microwave, TV dinner. Like for me, when I'm feeding myself, that's how I want to just eat real quick. I don't care. I'm not picky. But he says, when I have people over to my house, I, I don't feed them hot pockets. I want to lay out a feast. Not because I want to impress them, but because I want them to be well-fed and enjoy the experience and, and serve them well. So pastor elders here at Embassy, our hope is to give you a feast. Not a bunch of sugars that you, you get all high from and be like, oh, wow, that was, that was cute, that was funny, that was great. But some meat to chew on. Think of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters. He makes me lie down in green pastures. We want shepherds that want to lead you to the waters that are full of life. You can drink deeply from the word. And green pastures, good food to eat. One of my biggest convictions in terms of embassy church from the beginning is that we need a church that does not compromise, and we give you God's word. Amen. That it's not about a show. It's not about entertainment. It's not about trying to do something cool and flashy so that way you get a quick fix of, oh, that was like eating a Hot Pocket, and afterwards you're like, ugh, that didn't feel so good. 
Or maybe it's just a bunch of sugar. Think like cotton candy, like, oh yeah, I'm going to just stuff it in. But then afterwards you're like, yeah, that was probably just too much. And then if, if that's your steady diet week after week after week, we know this isn't good for our physical bodies, spiritually speaking then. We do not want churches that are full of pastors talking about themselves all the time. Full of elders that just tell stories all the time. It's good to tell stories. It's good to tell you about the Hope Diamond as an illustration to kind of connect. That's fine. But, but go, you've come from churches. Some of you know. I've listened to other pastors. The heavy diet of much preaching in America these days is light and fluffy stories about the pastor's own life that are just to tell you a quick joke so you don't fall asleep. And at the end of the sermon, you kind of ask, well, what do we get out of that? Well, at least I didn't fall asleep. Church was entertaining. How about a church where we feed you God's word, where we work through books of the Bible and sections of Scripture and say, here's the feast. And some of you, I know, I know for some of you, this is like, that's like taking a big steak and you're a little kid and you're like, I need to help like cutting that up. And that's what discipleship is about. And that's where it's like, keep coming. Some of you, you don't have a hunger for this yet, but we believe that over the course of time, your hunger will grow. And you'll be like, why did I ever give myself to just weak, fluffy, tawdry, flashy, instead of the word of God. And this isn't just about preaching, by the way. Have you ever noticed at Embassy Church, we make a commitment to read the word? Like actually read the Bible. In the preaching, we read the Bible. Prior to the preaching, we read the Bible two different times. That's why if you open your bulletin, you look on the left-hand side, Do you notice it says we read the word, we pray the word, we sing the word, we preach the word, we give our offerings in accordance with the word. We want to be a word-centered church and feed you with God's word week in and week out. This is the goal of what pastors and shepherds should be aiming toward in terms of how they see themselves and what their role is. If they're not doing this, Embassy Church, keep them accountable. It is your job to reprove, rebuke, and remove. I like to think of myself as a tour guide. A tour guide does a terrible job if all you remember is the tour guide. If you're taking a tour somewhere, you want to be in awe of whatever this thing is that you don't know about and say, hey, here's this and here's that. You're like, wow. That city, that museum, that artifact, that thing was just in awe. I was in all of that. And that's our hope. Here at Embassy, I would encourage you to be strengthened by God's word. What should leaders do? They should shepherd by feeding and taking care of the sheep. Thirdly, how do they do all of these things? How should leaders lead? And here we have the word oversight, overseeing, which is showing that there's a responsibility. You need to kind of look out over and take care of everybody in the whole congregation. And how are you going to do this? And there's three descriptions that are given for this oversight in our text. So let me read it to you, and we'll kind of work through them one by one. First, you see in verse 2 and 3, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. How should leaders lead? First, by overseeing willingly, not forced. Sometimes when church stuff gets hard, like here in 1 Peter 5, they're going through a hard time. There's a lot of suffering. It's like, if you're the leader, then you're the first one to take the hit from the persecution and the trials, and they get all the more difficult. So therefore, you should not be begrudgingly say, all right, I'll do it. Willingly, freely, joyfully. That same passage I just read to you about Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, imitate the faith of the men who are speaking God's word to you. If you read later in verse 17 of chapter 13, you'll see, and obey your leaders So that way they can be joyful. You don't want them to be all upset. Like, oh man, I hate my job. Praise God that for five years, Embassy Church, I was just talking to someone yesterday. I said, it has been a delight to be a shepherd of these people. By no means am I like, here comes Sunday again. Can't stand being at this church. Willingly, joyfully, according to God, it says. 
Very literally, that would be the phrase, according to God. Meaning what? Meaning according to the ways and patterns of God, not the ways and patterns of this world. The way we want to be leaders in the church is by doing so in a way that matches the humility of Jesus, matches the values of the kingdom of God, and not the values of this world, which are now fleshed out in the next two points. How should leaders lead? Overseeing with willingness, not forced to. Secondly, overseeing eagerly, not greedily. Not for money, not for shameful, disgraceful gain. That's how that word is used elsewhere in the New Testament. It's, this is shameful that you would do this to take advantage of people, to get their money. So at this point, I want to just make sure it's clear to you all. It is, it is a repeated teaching throughout various places like 1 Timothy chapter 5 or Galatians chapter 6 that men who give themselves to preaching and feeding God's flock should be paid for their work. And if the church can make it so that they can receive funds for that work, then praise God. By God's grace, that's the way this church has set itself up. But maybe make sure it's really clear. I am not doing this for money, nor should any of our elders. If, for whatever reason, there becomes a financial crisis, let's just hypothesize for a minute. What if the government decides no more tax relief for charitable donations to churches, especially certain churches that really want to believe the Bible? I don't know. That could be in our near future. What if giving dropped dramatically because of that? What if churches lost their free ability to not pay property taxes? In a church like this, it became ridiculous to try and pay for the property taxes here in Palatine. Right now, it's free. You don't have to pay property taxes if you're a church. What if it became really, really difficult for churches to pay their budgets and find places to meet? Oh, well. Or might we think, that's not what a church is. That's not what it means to be a church. What's upholding the gem of the, the diamond is not the building, but the people. Therefore, for me as a pastor, if I'm getting paid or I'm not getting paid, my hope is that as long as you don't fire me because I'm not being unfaithful, I will continue to preach God's word and I will make money elsewhere. I mean that with all of my heart. If I get paid part-time, full-time, or zero, or zilch just because of how the finances work, I am not in this for the money. At the same time, I want to thank you for the ways that you give generously at Embassy to make me free to do as best as I can to give my time to caring for sheep. It is a blessing to be able to have the church care for my needs, but it is not a necessity if the church can't do it. We should be eager, eager to do God's work regardless of what we get back here in this life. Some pastors are in it for their best life now. As we see in our text, verse 4, I'm in it for my best life later. So therefore, I don't want a jet plane. Nor should we be around churches and pastors that are demanding certain things along these lines. Overseeing with eagerness, not with greed. Thirdly, overseeing as a role model, not with an authoritarian, domineering spirit and way and manner. These, I think, are all the ways that, according to the world, the Gentiles lorded over in our passage earlier in the service when we had that scripture reading from Matthew. Jesus said, hey, listen, it is not for me to determine who's going to sit on my right or my left. What you should be seeing is how can you be a servant? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to lay down his life as a ransom for many. Therefore, we see in these texts here in 1 Peter, do not lord it over like the nations, like the Gentiles, like the worldly ways of using power to make money, to squash people, to spiritually abuse folks. Jesus left us an example. It's in 1 Peter chapter 2. We should be role modeling ourselves after the example of Jesus. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. If you turn a page over, you should see the same language of an example has been given to us is in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 21. For to this you have been called, 
because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The example for all elders, the example for all Christians is the example of Jesus. Therefore, when it says that he should be an example in chapter 5 of 1 Peter, I think he's thinking about Jesus as the ultimate example. He is the ultimate chief shepherd. Therefore, Jesus was never domineering. He never used power to exploit people. He used his power to help people, to heal people, to save people. He laid down his rights. A great cross-reference passage is Philippians chapter 2, and it says, have this mindset among you, starting in verse 5 of Philippians 2, that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he had equality with God in the heavens, he laid it down and became humble and took on the form of a slave-like servant and became a human and died in our place, even by taking death on a cross. This is our ultimate role model, Jesus the Christ who did not, with a high-handed authoritarianism, domineer. He had all of the power of the universe. And he used it to give his life up, to die. There is no position you will have on this earth that will compare to the authority that Jesus had before he came to this earth. If you want to be like Jesus, do what he did, we take all of the accolades, all the power, all the things that God has blessed us with, and we lay it down. We give it to the Lord in an act of service to care for his people. This must be especially true for those who call themselves shepherds, pastors, elders, overseers. How should leaders lead? Willingly, eagerly, as role models. But how do they do that? Our last verse is verse 4 that I want us to consider this morning. Verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The word crown here is the same word that's used throughout the first century for the Olympic Games. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the Olympic Games. The modern games use gold, silver, and bronze medals to reward those who won a race, competed in a certain way, and as they finished and they were victorious, they were then rewarded. In Peter's day, there was the Olympic Games, but you were crowned with a leafy salad on your head, a crown, a crown of leaves on your head. But the flowers would eventually fade. They would eventually die out. Jesus will return. And when he does, he'll make all things right and he will reward all of those who have set their eyes on things above and not on earthly things, including those who give of themselves as shepherds, as pastors. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This word received is sometimes used to talk about receiving judgment or receiving reward and blessing. Here it's naturally, obviously, reward. All of us who are teachers, not everybody should be teachers, James chapter 3 verse 1 says. You'll be held to a stricter judgment. You will receive something when the chief shepherd appears. For Peter, he is motivating them with a future glory, a future reward. In a nutshell, if you were to kind of unpack it further and think about all the different things that the Scriptures say, I don't think that it's like this gold crown and that all of a sudden when Jesus returns, we're going to love gold more than we love Christ. The 
crown of glory is knowing Christ and seeing him face to face and him saying to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into my kingdom. Be with me for all of eternity. What is it to give up? Even if you live for 80, 90 years, what would it be to give up for the temporary sacrifice for an eternal reward and a glory that cannot be compared with from any pleasure that you get here in this life? It's really not a sacrifice then. It's just delayed gratification. It is not wrong for pastors, teachers, shepherds, elders, or even you, church members, to be motivated by wanting something good. It's are you settling for something far less here now in this life and therefore trading in a future glory like the inheritance that Jacob and Esau's story, that he traded his future inheritance for a bowl of cereal. What a trade that was. That's what it's like every time you and I look at sin, look at the things that are shining and sparkling in the things of this world, and we don't consider that there is a future glory. Be motivated by it. That is not wrong and sinful. It's not wrong to want glory. It's just the right kind. The future glory that comes from Christ, that comes in knowing Him. And this future reward should feed our faith, and this is the fuel that helps us as pastors and leaders and for you as church members. One of the key ways for you to grow as a Christian is to behold the glorious diamond of the gospel. Another key way that the New Testament and the Bible talks about how you grow is to hold out for you the promises of the future and say, It's coming. So lay it down now because what's coming then will be far greater. So do you believe it? If you're here today and you're not a Christian or you're not accustomed to coming to our church or church in general, I want to just encourage you. Do you believe that there is, in fact, a man named Jesus who lived on this earth, died in the place of us as sinners on a cross? Historically, that's kind of a proven fact. The question is, does it actually accomplish something? And did he rise again from the dead? Is he now seated, living in bodily flesh at the right hand of the Father, waiting to return? And when he returns, he will reward those who put their hope in him. Here at Embassy Church, we believe that in a nutshell is the beauty of the diamond that we want to behold and what we want you to just see and glory in. He did come. He did die. He did rise again. He is reigning and ruling. It may not appear like it right now. Soon enough. Soon enough. You can bank on it. One of the best things about the Bible is how many times God says something, and then in history we see, oh wow, that came true. You can trust this word. You can put your whole life on it. You can be all in and say, yes, that is my future glory, and therefore everything looks different here in this life now. So pastors, shepherds, elders, we should be especially different because of the future glory that we are aiming ourselves towards. It should not make sense to the rest of the world around, oh, I could see why that person's a leader. He's got charisma, he's got good looks, he's wealthy, he's successful in this and that. Pastor, shepherd, leaders in the church should look weird to the rest of the world because they are so giving of themselves, serving of themselves, giving up big dreams and saying, no, I want to give to the kingdom. Selling big houses to be living in a more modest, simple, sacrificial, Christ-like manner. So friends, let's consider as a church how we can apply these words to our lives God has given us these instructions because the prongs of the gospel, in order for them to be displayed, need to not be falling apart. And so what I want to do now is pray. I want us to pray for embassy. I want us to pray for the other churches in our community and around the world. And I want us to pray that we would never for a moment think that, oh, Pastor Phil and embassy church, they've got it going on. They could never have this fall upon them where they lead into some sort of shameful gain or that 
They have no temptations of money or power or success. Would you please pray with me now and continually for your elders that we would be humble men that want to give of ourselves like Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your word and for this church and for the ways that throughout these last five years you have grown this church as we have tried our very best to humble ourselves and commit ourselves to this word. We want to confess, God, yet again, that we as shepherds have never been perfect. We are not Jesus, and we simply just want to point people as best as we can to him. I want to ask God for our four elders, myself, Ryan Fellebaum, Kenny Eleazar, and Paul Seaman, that these men and any of the future elders that might be appointed by this congregation, that not for one second would they be giving in to the temptation of trying to make money off of this church. I pray, God, that you'd protect them from any temptations that would make them want to abuse their power and their authority for selfish gain here in this life now. I pray, God, that you would, in fact, use these elders to see the glory of the diamond of the gospel and the future reward that is coming, and it would so transform and fix their desires and hearts that they would live as if this world is short and fleeting and temporary. It is like a vapor, and it will become here and there. It will pass before our very eyes, and before we know it, our last days will be here on this earth, and we will be in your presence. So God, we want to pray for embassy in these ways. We want to also pray for churches in our community and around the U.S. and around the world. Many of us can think of right now pastors and churches and church members who are hurting and are struggling because, in fact, this reality has not been lived out. We want to pray, God, that there'd be healing, that for those that are even in this room now that have been hurt by previous pastors and elders who have abused their authority in these ways, that Embassy Church could, by your grace, by your spirit, be a place to heal and be patiently cared for and known and loved and hopefully see the glory of Jesus. I pray, Father, that for those that aren't at Embassy Church, that those are in other churches, that they would, in fact, get healing and that there would be a way for you to work in their hearts to build up the trust that has crumbled down. Help us to see that the the gospel is so good and so infinitely worthy that we must fight for the church, for its beauty, and for the glory of the gospel. That the world is in a sick, dark place, and we have something of infinite value for it. So we pray, God, for your spirit to move and work through our church, through our community, and through the world. And do this, we pray, to the glory of your great name and not to the glory of any one church or person. In Jesus' name, amen.